Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A judge orders former President Trump to provide more evidence in his bid to get back materials seized by the FBI. Congressman Jerry Nadler ousts Representative Carolyn Maloney. Both served in the House for 30 years, but a new redistricting map has forced one of them to go. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis learns who his opponent will be in November. Democratic Representative Charlie Crist won his party's nomination on Tuesday. Some Democrats are using GOP messages in their campaign ads. A few are going directly against Washington. federal judge in Florida is giving former President Trump until Friday to better explain why he wants a special master. The independent party, typically a retired judge, would oversee the review of materials seized in the Mar-a-Lago search. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. District Court Judge Eileen Cannon ordered Trump's lawyers Tuesday to elaborate on why the court can step in now to appoint a special master. She also wants his team to explain exactly what Trump's asking for and the effect, if any, his request might have on a separate review into whether the sealed FBI affidavit can be released. Trump filed the motion asking for a special master Monday. It raised concerns that Trump's constitutional rights had been violated. It argued because of how the Justice Department and the FBI have treated Trump, they cannot be trusted to handle the Mar-a-Lago items properly. So Trump's team wants someone impartial, not Republican or Democrat, to take a look at what the FBI seized and return anything that should not have been taken. For example, information protected by attorney-client privilege or other forms of privilege. In response to Trump's motion Monday, a DOJ spokesperson said, the August 8th search warrant at Mar-a-Lago was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. They also said the DOJ is aware of Trump's new motion and the U.S. will file its response in court. Meanwhile, a newly surfaced government letter shows that the Biden White House, at the DOJ's request, signed off to have the FBI examine classified documents Trump had turned over to the National Archives, or NARA. NARA's acting head, Deborah Wall, wrote the letter to one of Trump's attorneys in May. It was about the back and forth whether federal law enforcement is allowed to conduct a national security review of the material, or if it should be shielded under Trump's executive privilege. Wall said she asked the White House and the DOJ for guidance. The letter indicates the Biden administration didn't think a former president could assert executive privilege over material he handed over to NARA. Wall eventually gave the material to the intelligence community. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Congressman Jerry Nadler won his primary in New York on Tuesday. He beat his longtime colleague, Representative Carolyn Maloney. The two incumbents were forced to run against each other after new districts were drawn in the state. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Nadler's win. Incumbent Representative Jerry Nadler is projected to win the Democratic nomination for New York's 12th Congressional District. Nadler has around 55% of the vote to Carolyn Maloney's 24%. A third competitor, Siraj Patel, got around 18% of the vote. Now I stand before you tonight deeply humbled to be your Democratic nominee for New York's 12th Congressional District. Nadler thanked Maloney for her work over the last 30 years. The 15-term incumbent lost her seat in the defeat when I thank her for her decades of service to our city. New redistricting maps merged much of their longtime congressional districts. Neither candidate was willing to run in another part of the city. 
Nadler, who is 75, was first elected to Congress in 1992. He is chair of the House Judiciary Committee and led both impeachments of former President Trump. Nadler was endorsed by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He will face Republican nominee Michael Zambleskis in November's general election. He's likely to win and keep his seat in the Democrat-favored city of New York. In New York's 10th Congressional District, Daniel Goldman won the Democratic nomination and ousted first-term representative Mondaire Jones. Goldman is a former federal prosecutor who served as counsel to House Democrats in Trump's first impeachment inquiry. He will face Republican nominee Benin Hamden in November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And in Florida, Representative Charlie Crist wins the Democratic gubernatorial primary. He will challenge Governor Ron DeSantis in November. Democrat voters in Florida have chosen a nominee to face Governor Ron DeSantis. This guy wants to be President of the United States of America, and everybody knows it. However, when we defeat him on November 8th, that show is over. Charlie Crist beat Nikki Freed and two other competitors in Tuesday's primary with around 60% of the vote. Freed had around 35%. Crist was once a Republican who served as Florida's governor from 2007 to 2011. He's also served two terms in Florida's state Senate and was Florida's attorney general in 2002. He is currently a congressman for Florida's 13th district and is endorsed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And in Florida's Senate race, Val Demings easily won the Democratic nomination with over 80% of the vote. She gave a victory speech on Tuesday. An America that will come together regardless of who we are, the party that we are in, where we live. Demings is a former police chief of Orlando, Florida. She will face incumbent Senator Marco Rubio. Rubio had a few words for Democrats at a primary night event. To our Democrat friends that are out there, your party has abandoned you. If you're a Democrat, a working class Democrat, maybe you've voted Democrat your whole life because your parents were members of unions or you're a member of a union or for whatever reason. I say to you tonight, your party has abandoned you. Rubio told the crowd he was confident of a win in November. The Democratic Party's been taken over by radical left-wing lunatics, laptop liberals and Marxist misfits. Tuesday's primaries are among the last scheduled before the November 8 midterm elections. They will determine the balance of power in the House and Senate in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. Representative Mark Wayne Mullen won Oklahoma's Senate GOP primary runoff on Tuesday. Senator Jim Inhofe is retiring early after nearly 30 years in office. Trump-endorsed Mullen won the Republican primary runoff with 65% of the vote. He beat former Oklahoma House Speaker and Banking Executive T.W. Shannon. Mullen is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. If elected in November, he will be the first enrolled Native American tribal member in the U.S. Senate since 2005. He is heavily favored to win November's general election. Oklahoma hasn't elected a Democrat to the Senate in over 30 years. The Texas Attorney General says ballots cast in Texas elections and are records that the public has a right to access. It clears up an issue related to anonymous ballots. The decision allows the public and members of the Texas legislature to view and copy ballots cast anonymously without delay. Anonymous ballots are those with no identifiable information about the voter or ballots with voter identifying data redacted. Texas ballots are designed to be anonymous. The AG said in a statement that the opinion offers a crucial new tool to fight election fraud. He wrote that anonymous ballots are election records and the legislature can use established procedures 
to both preserve the records and grant the public access. The opinion replaces one established 34 years ago that made ballots confidential for 22 months after an election. A Texas state representative and a state senator both requested an updated opinion from the AG last year. And more than two dozen Baltimore voters just recently received their 2020 election ballots. The U.S. Postal Service found a tray of undelivered mail on August 5th this year. A spokesperson told WMAR-TV that the mail, quote, was from year 2020 and contained what appeared to be 26 blank ballots mailed from the Baltimore City Board of Elections to addresses with a Baltimore zip code. He said the envelopes were finally delivered on August 6th. The Postal Service says it regrets the late delivery and plans to go over procedures before the next general election. One of the Baltimore residents who just received his 2020 ballot says he likely won't rely on mail-in voting in the future. The Baltimore City Election Director says the U.S. Postal Service didn't inform his office about the found ballots. And a group of citizens in Massachusetts is opposed to a new state law. A group of citizens in Massachusetts is opposed to a new state law. It puts driver's licenses in the hands of people living in the state illegally. The group has collected enough signatures, potentially, to overturn the measure. They have well over the 40,000 signatures required. That means voters, not lawmakers, will vote to decide if illegal immigrants will be given driver's licenses. Many of the signature collectors reportedly withstood violent attacks. That includes one volunteer who said he was punched in the face by a man who was yelling at him in a foreign language outside of a Walmart. In a sworn statement, he said police arrived and took no action against the alleged assaulter. The law to let illegal immigrants drive passed on June 8th when lawmakers overrode the governor's veto. The state's Republican governor warned that issuing driver's licenses to people residing in the state illegally would lead to voter fraud since anyone issued a driver's license in Massachusetts is automatically registered to vote. Supporters of the law say it would make illegal immigrants safer drivers since they would take the same road test that citizens take. Midterm elections are coming up, and candidates are trying to win the support of voters. Some Democrats are using Republican talking points in their videos. Here's more on that story. Some Democrat candidates are distancing themselves from their party and Washington now that the midterms are coming up. Democrat Representative Dan Kildee of Michigan launched an ad in July saying that he stood up against others in his own party. To cut the gas tax and to hire more police officers. And unlike others, I think members of Congress should be banned from buying stock while in office. Their families, too. I'm Dan Kildee, and while none of this will make me popular in Washington, I approve this message because I'm... Democrat Representative Jared Golden of Maine also used inflation and the so-called Inflation Reduction Act as talking points for his ad. I was the only Democrat to vote against trillions of dollars of President Biden's agenda because I knew it would make inflation worse. I stood with law enforcement against defunding the police. I support cutting the gas tax and increasing domestic oil production. Democratic Lieutenant Governor for Pennsylvania John Fetterman posted an ad called Blame Washington. It's Washington's fault. They set the rules, weakened our supply chain, and spiked inflation. But we can fix our economy. We must make more stuff in America. Cut taxes for working families. Congress shouldn't play in the stock market and take on anyone that gets in the way. Democratic strategist Ken Walling told Fox News it's not surprising some Democrats seem more independent. In every election cycle, you'll see many incumbent Democrats and Republicans running against Washington. 
He says that's why Congress's overall approval ratings are usually pretty low, while individual members of Congress have higher approval ratings in their districts. GOP political advertiser John Brabender told Fox News he thinks these Democrats are going against Biden because they believe the president's approval will not improve before the midterms. Now we turn to a multinational investment company that is facing backlash. State lawmakers are calling out the firm for prioritizing environmental, social, and political objectives over returns. Our next guest is an award-winning journalist from Liberty Sentinel Media who has written many publications for the Epic Times. He offers insight on the controversy. Joining us now to discuss the controversy surrounding BlackRock is Alex Newman, who is an author and senior journalist and president of Liberty Sentinel Media. Pleasure having you on, Alex. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Kevin. Nineteen attorneys general are demanding BlackRock and its alleged agenda for green energy and progressive ideas and prioritize profits instead. What's your reaction to this? Well, we do have uh, 19 Republicans uh, attorneys general, and there's probably more waiting in the wings. And what they're saying here is that uh, these actually look like legal violations, because under the laws of uh, many of the states, companies that invest money like this, their sole responsibility as a fiduciary is to make money for their clients. It's not to worry about global warming or ESG, the environment, social governance, uh, gender, and all these types of things. And so these uh, attorneys general are saying, look, you, uh, a lot of our state money is invested with these banks. A lot of our pension funds uh, for our public employees in our states are invested in BlackRock, and you're squandering away their money uh, going after you know carbon emissions and things like this that are not part of your job description. Uh, they also allege some other legal violations. They, they raise the issue of potential antitrust here. Uh, so it's a very, very significant uh, concern, I think, for BlackRock. And uh, they, I, I think they are addressing it. Their, their uh, head of global communications reached out and sent a statement and said, uh, you know, tried to defend the company and said that uh, clients like these things and uh, they're just trying to do what uh, they think clients want them to do. Yeah, for example, BlackRock defended itself saying many of their clients make their own decisions on their portfolios. And some said that some choose to invest in a mix of traditional energy companies and renewables. What do you make of this? Yeah, and that's true. But uh, what these attorneys general are saying, and uh, it very much looks to be true, is that uh, BlackRock is deliberately working to uh, divest from companies that deal with traditional fuels, with hydrocarbon fuels. Uh, they're looking to promote this uh, net zero agenda. Uh, and they're doing this very deliberately. This isn't something that's happening in the background. They're joining associations and networks and alliances where uh, the corporate members are, are committed to achieving these goals. And again, these goals have nothing to do with earning returns for clients, being good stewards of client money. And in this case, again, uh, these attorneys general um, represent states that have a lot of money invested in BlackRock. And some of them actually represent states that have uh, a vested interest in uh, the hydrocarbon fuel uh, and energy companies and things like this. So some of these states, uh, their economies depend on these things. So to have uh, the this company like BlackRock taking their money, the state's money, and using it to wage war against the industries that make up the backbone of those states' economies, uh, you can imagine why that would be problematic, in addition to all the alleged uh, potential legal violations. And what do you think is going to happen in the future with BlackRock? Well, uh, BlackRock was given until August 19th to respond. Uh, they, they have been, uh, I think, doing some PR work. 
And uh, we'll have to see. I, I spoke with some of these attorneys general, and they said that uh, this is just really the beginning of the process. Uh, there are going to be investigations. Uh, they also said that in the upcoming legislative session, I think for most states that'll start in 2023, uh, there's almost certainly going to be legislation dealing with this kind of thing. Uh, and in parallel with this, uh, there's another effort also made up of, I think, 15 or 16 states. I've spoken with some of the individuals involved, including the uh, uh, state treasurer for the state of West Virginia, where they are actually trying to blacklist some of these uh, financial institutions, including BlackRock, because of their commitment to destroying the hydrocarbon fuel, the, the fossil fuel sector. Well, this is very consequential. I mean, BlackRock is a behemoth. They invest $10 trillion. Alex Newman, Liberty Sentinel Media, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Coming up, a small town in New Mexico is having a water crisis. The city only has a few weeks left of drinking water, so how did it get to this point? Find out more after the break. Don't park your SUV in your garage. That's the warning going out to owners of two models of sport utility vehicles. On Tuesday, the Department of Transportation shared this warning with owners of Hyundai and Kia SUVs that were recently recalled due to fire risks. Over 245,000 Hyundai, Palisade, and 36,000 Kia Telluride vehicles were recalled last week. The South Korean automakers said tow hitches on the vehicles could allow moisture in, causing an electrical short circuit that could lead to a fire. No fires or injuries due to the issue have been confirmed. This affects Hyundai Palisade and Kia Telluride vehicles made between 2020 and 2022. The DOT said owners should park those vehicles outside and away from their homes until their vehicles are repaired. Hyundai offers an interim repair for its SUVs, but that's not the case yet for Kia. Both automakers say they will notify affected owners once a full repair is available. A plane headed to San Diego was diverted back to Seattle shortly after takeoff Monday. According to Alaska Airlines, there was a problem with one of the engines. An airline representative said Flight 558 reported an unusual vibration on the left side of the aircraft. A passenger on the flight took these pictures showing the plane's left engine. The aircraft was able to return to the airport and land safely. According to the airline, part of the metal housing for the engine detached from the plane. No injuries were reported. The passengers were all rebooked on a later flight. At last check, the cause of the issue was still being investigated. And now over to New Mexico, a college town by the name of Las Vegas is having a water crisis. The town only has less than 30 days of drinking water left. Here are the details. We are looking at um, only about a few weeks of, of water supply left. The clock is ticking on the water supply for Las Vegas, New Mexico, a college town and economic hub for ranchers and farmers. Just months earlier, a wildfire raged near the town and its surrounding mountain villages. Due to unprecedented 1,200-year drought, combination of high winds, extreme dryness, and a winter where there was not very much snow, uh, big piles of wood that had been burned to try to clear the debris from the clearing project um, actually reignited into a fire which uh, is unique, uh, doesn't really happen very much. The city is having one of the best monsoon seasons it's ever had, but people there can't capture any of the water because of the fire. Now the city must figure out a way to survive before the water supply runs out. Authorities there have imposed higher stages of conservation and are looking for help from elsewhere. We've identified a, a system that does pretreatment to water. Um, we're implementing that in the next few weeks. 
Uh, it's coming from out of state. It's on its uh, it's on the highway right now on the way down to Las Vegas uh, to pre-treat some of the contaminated water that we have in one of our lakes, which will add to the storage or add to the supply of the city of Las Vegas. The city manager says this will put a band-aid on the situation for now, but the city still needs to get cleaner water from the river and fill up its reservoirs in the long run. We want to make sure that we, uh, now that we have all the federal partners at the table, find the monies that we need to uh, rebuild a dam that leaks uh, to, to um, uh, extend the storage of, of water so that it doesn't put us in this situation in the future. Daniel Patterson, press officer at the U.S. Forest Service, says the top priority right now is restoration work in Gallinas Canyon because it's a supply of drinking water for Las Vegas, New Mexico. Snapchat users in Illinois could be eligible for some money. Snap Incorporated, Snapchat's parent company, has agreed to pay $35 million to settle a class action lawsuit. The plaintiffs accused Snapchat of using its photo filters to scan a person's facial features and collect biometric data without consent. That's a violation of Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act. Any Illinois resident who used the feature between November 17, 2015 and now could be eligible for part of the settlement, but they would have to submit a claim by November 5th. The settlement still needs to be approved by a district court. While Snapchat agreed to the settlement, the company denies any wrongdoing. Apple is helping do-it-yourselfers fix computer issues after users complained that the company didn't allow them to access their own devices. The self-service repair program begins today for MacBook Air and MacBook Pro notebooks. They've set up a support website for customers to get repair manuals, buy genuine Apple parts, and rent tools from the Apple self-service repair store. Earlier this year, Apple launched a similar repair store for the iPhone. It comes after the Librarian of Congress approved the right to repair last year after encouragement from President Biden. The update means copyright law can't block users from tinkering with their own tech. But critics say Apple's new resources are too costly to be practical for many users. The U.S. Postal Service is introducing a new Christmas-themed forever stamp. It features the 16th century virgin and child oil painting. The painting was originally attributed to Italian artist Andrea del Sarto of Florence, but that remains unclear. Now art experts say only that it's by an artist known as the Master of Scandici Lamentation. The painting is part of the Robert Dawson Evans Collection at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. There will be a first day of issue event for the stamp on September 22nd at the museum. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, the U.S. and South Korea are on their third day of their joint military drills. Find out what makes this year's drills a little different. And for decades, Chinese citizens needed a permit to live in their own country. And now in some parts of China, the permit has been upgraded, starting with COVID restrictions. Find out more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. South Korea and the United States continue joint military drills as the Allies seek to tighten readiness over North Korea's potential weapons tests. The drills are known as the Ulchi Freedom Shield. Footage shows South Korean and American soldiers participating in drills in a forested area while Navy personnel simulated an operation at a container port. 
South Korea's defense minister visited a command post and met the commanding general of the U.S. troops. It's the first time a South Korean general is commanding the annual joint drills with American forces, and it's a step toward Seoul's long-delayed goal of gaining command of allied forces in the event of a war. The annual summertime exercises kicked off on Monday and are scheduled to end September 1st. The South Korean president says he hopes it will boost deterrence against North Korea. In addition to the joint drills with the U.S., South Korea is also holding civil defense exercises this week. The latest is an anti-terror drill simulating a chemical and drone attack at a shopping mall. The drill involved around 230 people from 12 organizations, including Special Operations Command, a special police squad, a fire station, and Chemical, Biological, and Radiological Protection Command. Firefighters scaled the building to rescue people from imagined attackers while an explosive disposal team removed a mock chemical bomb. The civil defense drills began on Monday and are set to finish up on Thursday. The goal is to check the country's crisis management and emergency preparedness. It's the first nationwide government drills since the CCP virus pandemic. Stepping up from a health code developed during COVID-19 pandemic, some areas in China now mandate electronic residence permits. And Big Brother is watching you 24-7. Here's that story. A province along southeast China's coast is ramping up control measures on its citizens. Authorities in Guangdong are launching what they call electronic residence permits. They are now mandatory for all residents in the province. To apply, locals must first register their residency and ID information with local police. They are then assigned a digital barcode called the Living in Guangdong Code. Social media posts reveal that community workers and volunteer police are going door to door, directing people to register. The barcode program was launched this March. It's an upgraded version of the health codes used in China for contact tracing and pandemic control. Comments from one social media group describe the new barcode as a hundred times more powerful than the old version. While a tweet likened it to a ball and chain or a pair of handcuffs that follow wherever their word goes. It went on to say that Chinese people are slaves to these kinds of technology. Just three months after the new version took effect in March, the barcode was again upgraded, this time into the current electronic residence permits. An expert described the registration process for it as a tool for the Chinese Communist Party. That's so it can better monitor Chinese citizens. It allows the police to quickly and easily locate any person at any time. The impact is huge. That is, the efficiency for this dictatorship. It unprecedentedly improves the police ability to monitor people. Lai says Chinese authorities will likely impose the electronic residence permit mandate across the country and that its use in Guangdong is probably a pilot program. Also in China, special police are training to catch random citizens and enforce COVID-19 testing. This is a serious drill with fully armed police. Tiffany Meyer has that and more in today's China in Focus. Reports of an unusual kind of police drill are coming out of China. Videos suggest police officers there are practicing the use of force, but not against dangerous criminals. Instead, the targets are those who refuse to cooperate with COVID-19 testing mandates. A police department in Inner Mongolia posted a video on Douyin, the Chinese version of TikTok. The clip shows six fully armed SWAT police, short for Special Weapons and Tactics.
They are seen with guns and shields at the ready, encircling a man who is posing as someone refusing to get tested. The video's subtitle reads, he refuses to cooperate by taking the COVID-19 test. Take him down. A similar case was caught on tape, except this one wasn't a staged drill. During the incident, a man riding a scooter was surrounded by a group of police. Two police motorcycles blocked his path. Was a police car standing by in the area? The man was blocked in and could be heard arguing with the officers, saying, His comments may have offended the police, as he was heard repeatedly explaining that he wasn't accusing them of anything. The police on spot reported the case. It is unclear what happened to the man after the encounter. Members of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, or IPAC, have launched the Indo-Pacific Forum for Lawmakers. That's after the signing of a security treaty between Communist China and the Solomon Islands. According to its website, the IPAC is an international cross-party network, consists of more than 200 lawmakers from over 20 countries, including Australia, Japan, and New Zealand. The alliance vows to defend a rules-based liberal order and values of democracy and freedom of expression. The new forum will be the first interparliamentary effort to address China's growing military threats in the region. Lawmakers from Taiwan, South Korea, Pacific Island countries, Europe, and other partners have also been invited. And just ahead, on the day marking Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union, Ukraine's president promises victory in the war with Russia. And Belgian energy cooperatives help citizens save money as energy costs bite into Europe. The cooperatives allow citizens access to renewable energy. We'll have all that and more for you after the short break. Ukraine's Independence Day falls exactly six months into the war with Russia. Celebrations were subdued amid fears of attack, but President Volodymyr Zelensky promised victory. Air raids tore the eerie morning quiet in Kiev on Wednesday to mark 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union. It's also six months to the day since Russia invaded Ukraine. Hulks of burnt-out Russian tanks and armoured vehicles have been laid out like war trophies in the centre of the capital. Moscow calls its invasion a special military operation, prompted by threats to its security. Ukraine was reborn on that day, President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a recorded speech. He vowed Ukraine would drive out Russian forces completely, recapturing occupied areas of eastern Ukraine and Russian-annexed Crimea. Zelensky has banned public celebrations this year for fear of attacks. This was last year's Independence Day. It's an important public holiday, usually marked by a military parade and mass rallies. Instead, quiet streets and subdued memorials. As a military guard pays tribute to those fallen in the latest war. Thousands of civilians have been killed and more than a third of Ukrainians forced from their homes. Almost 9,000 Ukrainian military personnel have lost their lives, the military says. Russia hasn't publicized its losses, but U.S. intelligence puts them at 15,000. After it failed to seize Kiev, Russia focused on taking eastern Ukraine. The war is largely at a standstill, with no immediate prospect of peace talks. 
British Airways plans to cut thousands of flights from its winter schedule due to airport passenger caps and less demand. In total, they say it will impact around 10,000 flights through March. That's about 8%. The Heathrow Airport's daily passenger limit of 100,000 was just extended through most of October. The cap began in July due to staff shortages, long lines, and lost luggage. British Airways says it means they'll have to cancel roughly 12 trips per day while the passenger limit is in place. In the same statement, they announced the cuts from the winter schedule. The airline says customers will be offered another flight with British Airways or another airline or given the option of a refund. Belgium has dozens of local energy cooperatives. These groups are seeing a huge spike in demand as the energy crisis hits consumers. Energy cooperatives are citizen-owned initiatives investing in renewable energy and energy efficiency. Let's take a look. Bernadette van der Kammen lives in an Arts Deco mansion in northern Belgium, and keeping up with its energy bills is a challenge even at the best of times. Now, with the energy crisis biting and millions of Europeans facing soaring prices, it's a bigger struggle. But the 67-year-old is now only paying half of what she'd pay a regular commercial energy provider because she belongs to what's called a local energy cooperative, and Belgium has dozens of them. They're citizen-owned initiatives investing in renewable energy and energy efficiency. It's cheap. I looked up an electric bill from three years ago, and back then I was paying €47 a month. In the meantime, EcoPower installed a digital consumption monitor, and at the moment, in August 2022, my invoice is just under €35 a month. Van der Kamen's provider, EcoPower, supplies households at production cost, fixed for the lifespan of the energy source, topped up by grid fees and taxes, as well as the cost of running itself. EcoPower says it's seen demand rise so sharply that it's had to stop accepting new members. Spokeswoman Margot Vingerhout. As an energy community, we don't want to make profits on our energy supply. So we sell at cost price. That means that you get a fair bill. We'll not always be the cheapest. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. At the current market prices, we definitely are. Um, so you get a fair price. Vingerhout says it's an answer to what she calls a triple crisis. Climate change, geopolitics and price inflation. EcoPower is now Belgium's biggest energy cooperative, with wind turbines and solar panels supplying 55,000 homes. Other Belgium cooperatives have also seen a huge spike in demand. There are about 40 energy cooperatives supplying power to some 2% of Belgium's households. A 130-foot-long superyacht recently sank off the coast of southern Italy. The video from the Coast Guard captured the scene. In the footage, the yacht is seen slowly tilting until it's fully submerged. It reportedly sank about nine nautical miles off the coast of Catanzaro. The vessel, named My Saga, was flying the flag of the Cayman Islands. It began taking on water after setting sail. Coast Guard patrol boats were then dispatched to the scene. Rescuers managed to pull out the five people on board, and no one was injured. A tugboat company was then hired to save the vessel, but poor weather conditions and the position of the yacht made the mission difficult, and the effort sadly ended up in failure. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Mexican journalists protest after a reporter was killed. It's the country's deadliest year yet for media workers. A group claims violence against journalists has skyrocketed. 
An ambitious train project by the Mexican government is facing opposition from local communities. It would connect beach resorts and Mayan archaeological sites on the Yucatan Peninsula. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back. A Mexican columnist is shot to death in his car. He's the 18th media worker killed in the country this year. Now journalists are demanding an end to the violence. The columnist was murdered on Monday in the Pacific coastal state of Guerrero amidst the bloodiest year on record for Mexican media workers. Local media says he was ambushed by armed attackers on a motorcycle. He had just posted a column on the alleged involvement of local politicians in the disappearance of 14 students in 2014. His death follows the murders of at least three other Mexican journalists this month. Organizations focused on media freedom are trying to determine if his death was linked to his profession. Human rights group Article 19 says violence against the press has skyrocketed since President Obrador took office in 2018. Mexico, like so many other places around the world, is in the midst of a devastating heat wave. July was the second hottest month in Mexico since 1953, and high temperatures are coming amid a severe shortage of water. It had the feel of an outdoor festival or county fair. But this public gathering in northern Mexico is a citizens' group response to a crisis, a severe drought that has caused extensive water shortages in Coahuila State. During a recent day-long event they called Waterton, they were collecting bottled water for distribution in neighborhoods where taps have run dry. It is urgent to send truckloads to those communities, this organizer says, adding that their goal was to collect 10 metric tons of bottled water for people in need. Coahuila is not the only Mexican state facing a severe drought. It's so dry in Nuevo León, which borders with Texas, that Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador declared an emergency there late last month, as most of the country suffers rain shortages since 2020 and 2021. In an emergency situation, people's needs should be the priority, the president said. His decree means that the government can tap into industrial and agricultural water allotments to quench people's thirst. The leader of the largest industrial association in Monterrey rejected any suggestion that companies are taking more than their fair share of water. There are companies that are not using all their water, but on paper they have the right to use that much water. Well, those permits can be transferred so the water utility company can legally take more water from the subsoil to inject it into the drinking water network of the Monterrey metropolitan area. Monterrey, one of Mexico's most important cities, is Nuevo León's capital state. The industrial hub of nearly six million depends mainly on two reservoirs, including Cerro Prieto. But as these NASA satellite images show, its water levels dropped to 0.5 percent of its capacity of 393 million cubic meters in the last seven years. For residents like Ruth Gonzalez, the situation means spending several hours every day in a desperate effort to find enough water for her family's daily needs. 
She says there was no water in her neighborhood and was afraid she wouldn't be able to find any at the vending machine, which proved to be true for a third day in a row. Earlier this month, drought conditions and low levels at a reservoir in central Mexico prompted rationing measures in Mexico City, the capital, and the adjoining Mexico state. At more than 26 million, together they form the most populated metropolitan area in the entire country and one of the largest in the world. Mexico is trying to build an ambitious train project on the Yucatan Peninsula, but the project is facing some major opposition from local communities. Here are the details. Mexico's 950-mile Maya train line will run in a rough loop around the Yucatan Peninsula, connecting beach resorts and archaeological sites. But one controversial part between Cancun and Tulum will cut through the jungle and go over some of the most complex and fragile underground cave systems in the world. And this has drawn opposition. We are protecting this evidence, these vestiges. We found 10 pre-ceramic individuals who date up to 5,000 years. Down below are their cousins, uncles, grandfathers, yet to be discovered. We are running the risk that all of this will be buried in history lost. For more than two years, Mayan communities have been objecting to the train line. They argue that the railway violated their right to a safe, clean environment and to be consulted. Some local residents have been talking to construction workers recently. We have been doing this for a few days now, since last week, when we approached workers and engineers and asked them to stop the construction work. They understood. We explained to them that we are defending the place where we live, that we are defending the planet and the great Mayan aquifer. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador exempted the train from environmental impact studies. Last month, he invoked national security powers to forge ahead with the project, overriding court injunctions. This is an important example of how careful engineers need to be on a project of a train built over a karstic landscape. There's a deep connection between the jungle and the caves. The thickness of the limestone is very thin. It even has fractures. The Mexican president argues that he just wants to develop the historically poor southern part of Mexico, and the train line will help do it. And now over to Peru. Archaeologists have found several burial sites from an ancient civilization dating from over a thousand years ago. The discovery is related to the Wari culture. It reveals the existence of elite artisans dedicated to manufacturing pieces of great ornamental value. The burials belong to two women, two men, two children, and a young man. They were buried with jewelry, ceramics, textiles, tools, and handicrafts. The discovery provides evidence that the Wari culture expanded from the country's south to the north. The Wari capital was near modern-day Ayacucho in the Andes, but they traveled widely and are known for their extensive network of roads. Polish archaeologists discovered the sites. The civilization dates from the 7th to 12th centuries A.D. Just ahead, Top Gun Maverick is the box office success of 2022, raking in over $1.4 billion globally. Some wonder if a third movie is in the works. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Top Gun Maverick has made more than $1.4 billion worldwide, becoming the top grossing movie of the year. And you can now watch it at home. 
The director and producer share what they think of the movie's success. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. Here we go. In three, two, one. Top Gun Maverick is the biggest box office success of 2022 so far, raking in around $1.4 billion globally. It's overtake Avengers Infinity War for the sixth spot in the top U.S. box office films of all time. For director Joseph Kaczynski and star and producer Tom Cruise, it's been a huge surprise. Kaczynski said he's frequently been in touch with Cruise. We talk a lot or email a lot uh, because I think we're, you know, we just can't believe how well the movie's been received. You know, it's, it's, it's what we were striving for. It's what we worked for. It's what you dream about. Jerry Bruckheimer produced both the original 1986 Top Gun as well as Maverick. He believes he has the answer to the box office success. Tom has made so many films with so many talented actors and writers and directors, and we're the fortunate ones who've taken that knowledge that he's learned through those years, and he's imparted it in Top Gun, and that's why it's the big success that it, it's become. Top Gun Maverick is now available digitally but it's still thriving in theaters. Many believe the film has helped movie theaters rebound from the pandemic. What do we have here? It's so gratifying to have people kind of come up to me as they do, you know, almost every day and, and just talk about um, falling in love with going to the movies again and how, you know, Top Gun was a part of that uh, for them. Hollywood blockbusters don't often make it at the Oscars. The last blockbuster to win Best Picture was The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003. Well, my thoughts are the Academy will decide if it's worthy of an Oscar. I think it's, it's, it's a great film. Audiences think it's a great film. We make it for, for theaters. We make it for audiences. We make it for all the people behind the scenes. With the success of both the original Top Gun and now Top Gun Maverick, some wonder if a third movie is in the works. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Movie lovers, listen up. MoviePass is coming back. The subsidized ticketing subscription service is set to relaunch on Labor Day. With MoviePass, you used to be able to watch a movie a day for $10 a month. This time around, a monthly subscription price is expected to include a number of credits to use at U.S. theaters each month, and prices will vary depending on the plan and number of credits. However, this time, MoviePass isn't just for anyone. If you want to get in on it, you'll first have to join a waitlist and then be chosen. You can sign up on the MoviePass website starting Thursday morning. If you make the cut to get one, you will be notified on Labor Day, September 5th. Summer fruits are abundant at the moment, and there are so many different ways you can eat them. Let's get a few ideas. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Summer fruits are the perfect snack to keep you hydrated on a hot summer's day. In-season fruits can include mangoes, coconuts, pears, strawberries, and peaches. 
and don't forget berries like raspberries, blueberries and blackberries. Many are loaded with vitamins and in some cases antioxidants as well. We've rounded up some of the best ways to enjoy these delicious treats. Number 1. Fruit Salads Fruit salads are one of the easiest ways to enjoy a melody of fruits. They can be great for breakfast or a light dessert. Number 2. Grilled Fruit Grilling fruits are a welcomed addition to any barbecue and can be grilled on their own or added to skewers. Try throwing some pineapple on the grill for a zesty addition to your meal. Number 3. Marinades Marinades can make or break your barbecue and choosing the right fruit can add the right kick to your meal. Cherries work as a great marinade and can help with post-workout muscle recovery. Number 4. Frozen Fruit Frozen fruit can be a quick and resourceful way to bulk up your smoothies, but also lightly flavour your drinks as well. Try freezing some raspberries and dropping them into some ice water. Number 5. Fruit Salsas Traditional salsas are heavy on tomatoes, so how about trying a watermelon salsa? Watermelons are loaded with vitamins and they can also help you to fight cardiovascular disease. Number 6. Smoothies Smoothies are a great way to start your day and depending on what's in them can provide a host of health benefits. Number 7. Juices Juicing is another great way to ensure you are getting enough fruit servings in a day. They can also help to boost your overall energy levels. And number 8. Raw There's really nothing like enjoying a piece of raw fruit on its own. Apple and pears are both loaded with vitamins and other nutrients. So there you have it, 8 ways to eat summer fruits. Windsurfers gathered for a traditional marathon in Lake Silva Plana, Switzerland, but this year the format of the race was quite unlike previous ones. The event known as Engadine Wind is one of the most famous water sport events worldwide. It's also the oldest windsurfing tournament in the world. Typically, it features some 200 participants from 15 countries. They surf on two lakes for over one week. But this year, tricky wind conditions forced organizers to change the way they compete. A timed one-hour race was set between two buoys on the lake instead. The winner is whoever performs the most rounds between the markers. Windsurfers from Britain and Israel won the men's and women's titles. The riders were competing in the IQ foil class. This is the updated board and sail design set to be used in the Olympics in 2024. Fair warning, once you hear this, you can't unhear it. And it's a little terrifying. It's the sound of a black hole. NASA shared this 34-second clip of the Perseus Galaxy Cluster, which is about 240 million light-years away from Earth. Scientists say the black hole sends out pressure waves that cause ripples and hot gas, which can be translated into a note. To be clear, though, the actual note is one humans can't hear. It's about 57 octaves below middle C. But the folks at NASA say they shifted the note so we could hear it, amplified it, and then mixed it with other data they have about black holes. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.